0: And on today's edition of Urban Squeeze, we shall be talking about climate change and the city. But before I get to that, this is the 20th edition. Of Urban Squeeze, how time has flown, Tony Matthews. It
1: has. We've been
0: how doing this
1: <laughs> since last August. It's amazing, actually. 20 episodes. I feel like
0: we've achieved something really quite special. It's a, milestone. Quite yeah, a milestone.
1: Yeah, <laughs> really happy, actually. <laughs>
0: milestone. 20 whole episodes. Wow. Could just about be the longest surviving segment on Drive in recent memory. To be honest, we do tend to chop and change, so you've stuck true to the cause. Well done. Thank you. We're honoured. Round of applause. Dr Tony Matthews from Griffith University School of Environment here to talk about what he talks about a lot, and that is climate change and the city. Mm -hmm. The the interrelationship
1: between the two two things.
0: How are they
1: fundamentally linked? Um, There's a direct relationship between the two. First and foremost, about 70%, probably more actually than 70% of all global greenhouse gas emissions come from cities. And the majority of the world's population and the vast majority of the Australian population are living in cities. Um, so we have a huge uh, relationship there in terms of the pollution and greenhouse gas emissions of cities. Uh, where is that coming from? Uh, it's coming from a number of sources. One is transport. People getting yeah. around publicly or privately. Buildings are another one. Heating and cooling buildings requires a lot of energy and that then results in greenhouse gas emissions. Electricity generation, particularly if uh, you're powering your cities, as we mostly do, uh, by burning coal. So there's a huge greenhouse gas footprint associated with that. And agriculture is another one. It doesn't occur necessarily in cities, but the majority of agricultural activity takes place to feed urban dwellers. In terms
0: of ferrying stuff around, transportation, etc.
1: Most of the food that we grow is, I mean, grown in agricultural land is then consumed by people that live in cities.
0: Okay. Uh, What... I suppose It might be best to localise the discussion today because we live in a a city, I mean, we talk about carbon footprints, but we live in a city with a geographic footprint that is a little bit unusual. It's long, it's thin, uh, but it covers a fairly wide space, if if you know what I mean, if you understand what I mean. What specific challenges exist for us here on the Goldie?
1: Well, uh, I mean, climate change challenges specifically, we can look at and then look at what Some of the drivers of of greenhouse gas problems and things on the Gold Coast. Um, So, I mean, looking forward, uh, and I was looking at the City of Gold Coast uh, Coast climate change strategy earlier today, which I was sorry to see ran out in 2014 and hasn't been renewed, uh, or I don't find a a new version. Um, But a couple of the predictions for this part of the world were somewhere between 18 and 79 centimetres in sea level rise by the end of century. So yep. that is, you know, we could be heading towards a metre. If you are to look at other figures, it could be much higher, but that's the official one that's being used. So that
0: was 80 to 90? 18 to 18 79. To, so okay.
1: somewhere between, say, 20 and 80 centimetres by the end of the century, Gee, wait, okay, which is very su- substantial for such a low-lying place. Um, An increase in average. a place
0: that's already susceptible on king tides.
1: Yes. Mm. And I mean, again, and I've said it on previous shows, the best way to appreciate the Gold Coast vulnerability to sea level rise is to look down on it. So get on Google Maps and look at it from the satellite image and you'll see just how vulnerable it actually is. Canals. Canals. Estuaries, yeah. um, You know, we, we think along the shoreline, for example, that we're looking out to the sea and we're forgetting that most of those buildings have vast water bodies behind them um an increase in average annual temperatures of between 1.1 and 4.4 degrees celsius by 2070 um also an increase in the number of very hot days above 35 degrees so we currently have less than 10 i think so that could probably double uh an increase in the number of oh yeah here i go uh, up to 14 days per annum i already uh Uh, did it um, up to 14 days per annum uh, above 35 degrees by 2070 Um, increase in one in 100 year storm surge height by up to 35 centimeters and an increase in extreme rainfall intensity for two hour events of 46 percent by 2070. So that's two hour long extreme rainfall events, which are very significant. I mean, that's like storm level rain. Um, And then, of course, you've all of the coastal stuff as well, sea level rise, coastal erosion, land slippage, um, beaches being destroyed, buildings uh, being undermined, salt water getting into concrete, all of that sort of stuff. All those
0: sorts of things that go hand in hand with it. We hear a lot about this uh, climate change um, uh, concept, if you like, uh, being discussed at a federal government level. What about at a local level here on the Gold Coast? Do you you see any evidence of local authorities uh, taking the the bull by the horns, so to speak, and starting to implement initiatives designed to offset some of what you've predicted?
1: Yeah, I mean, Gold Coast uh, Council has has made a a few positive strides in this regard. Um, In fact, they very helpfully have a a, a a table of key milestones in their climate change journey, as they call it. Uh, Now, not to go into everything that they've done, but uh, sea level rise is is factored into planning schemes here and Mm -hmm. has been for over 10 years now. And that's very important because... When you're um, granting permission for development in 2017, you need to have some awareness of the fact that it could be vulnerable in 2060 or 2070. So that it's very important to factor sea level rise in. And they do seem to be doing that. Um, there's a lot of renewable energy, small scale renewable energy um, provision by council, solar panels on libraries and things like that. So that's useful. And. Um, Particularly the Commonwealth Games, there's a bunch of renewable energy installations going in around that. Uh, Council has established a natural hazard team to coordinate policy and planning on floods, bushfires, and landslides. And again, uh, important to remember, you know, Gold Coast City also includes to some, you know, includes the hinterland. So some of these things around bushfire and stuff, are, you know, are big threats there, but not maybe necessarily on this side of the M1 um, or less less so. So that is very important to look at as well from council's point of view. Um, other stuff, I mean, specifically in the built environment, the light rail, I mean, one of the problems that cities have is a lot of people in cars, and it's a problem in this city as well. Um, now, that's not to say that people necessarily want to be in cars. If they had good public transport options that were frequent and reasonably priced and mm. got them where they needed to go, they might take those. But in the absence of that, people will get in cars. So one um, certainly alleviating factor in the Gold Coast is the light rail, um, which is really good if you're going in certain directions, and that probably gets a lot of people out of their cars, Um so that's been very helpful and also another thing that we often talk about in urban planning around reducing climate change uh, impacts or well not reducing climate change impacts but reducing greenhouse gases in cities is trying to get more people living closer together connected to public transport and we call those developments transit oriented developments and gold coast hubs Coast's, if you like hubs exactly yeah. yeah um and gold coast has done one of those down in, Bar- in in Varsity Lakes so you know that's a good achievement as well so there there's a lot going on here um Council, as well as looking at uh, managing sea level rise and coastal erosion, there's sea walls and beach nourishment and things like that. So there is good work going on. Um, you could argue that maybe there's more work going on in what we call the adaptation space, which is. What do you mean by that? So you've you've two major responses to climate change um, at large, you, whether in cities or globally or whatever way you want to look at it. Um, one is mitigation that is reducing greenhouse gases. Yep. And the other is called adaptation, and that is trying to uh, find a way to cope with the climate change impacts that are already locked into the system. And this is a, you know, not to go too far into the climate change science, but we have this thing called... um, Uh, legacy problems or so basically what happens is greenhouse gases collect in the atmosphere and they can be there for many decades before they start to assert themselves so in a sense a lot of the climate change impacts that we're getting now or that we're starting to experience you know this extreme weather and things like that is actually a feature of um legacy greenhouse gases not the ones that we're putting into the atmosphere today the ones (laughs) we're putting into the atmosphere today are going to be the ones that cause a problem in half a century so we're dealing with the legacy so we can to some degree we can future cast what we might be looking at by way of climate change impact in in a city or in a country and we can try and adapt to that and there's different ways that you can adapt to climate change impact in cities um and i suspect that most of what's happening in in gold or it seems to me anyway in my reading is that there's a lot more focus on adaptation which doesn't necessarily mark gold coast out separately from any other city in this country Uh, i was looking at all of the city climate change plans earlier and there is a Um, a real predominance of um, uh, adaptation to climate change rather than climate change mitigation. And you could argue maybe that goes to the fact that the federal government doesn't seem that committed to mitigation, um, but they're probably more committed to adaptation. Uh, Certainly the cities seem to be pursuing that approach rather than mitigation. So I I, I feel a lot of what's going on here is adaptation rather than mitigation. It's interesting, though. Tony uh, Matthews from the School of Environment
0: with me this afternoon. The Urban Squeeze talking climate change. Tony, we often do this. We localise things, then we globalise them. What cities in the world are best practice in this space? Who's doing things really well, both in a mitigation sense and an adaptation sense.
1: Well, one city, that's, uh, one city that's doing things really well in both senses, and, I mean, it's one that we mention regularly for a variety of reasons, it's one that uh, hits a lot of targets, is Singapore. They're doing really, really well. Um, but Singapore have a long history of being a green city anyway, so they have a lot of greenery in the city, and that reduces... Um, you know that will capture a certain amount of carbon and reduce air pollution and things like that um, but Singapore uh, are really ramping up their greening initiatives and trying to adapt to climate change. Um, the National Parks Board provides up to 50% funding for the installation of green roofs on buildings in Singapore for example so green roofs are very very good because they reduce temperature within buildings which reduces air conditioning demand. Gr- um,
0: explain to us what a green roof is. So a green roof, roof is. is
1: effectively you you, you, you take a, um, a flat roof or a roof with a very gentle slope and rather than covering it in something like bitumen, you cover it in uh, a number of layers of substrate. Obviously, you, you water seal it first and then you put a number of layers of substrate on it. And then you plant it up with sedums or grasses uh, or small shrubs. Yeah. Um, and so it becomes, in effect, a, a garden, if you will, on your roof. OK. And it becomes so it becomes a green roof. We call it a green roof. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's a living thing and it has a number of really good qualities. Um, I mean, first and foremost, it, it's very aesthetically appealing. If you can imagine, you know, a tiled or a collar bond roof suddenly replaced with a little garden. I mean, that's obviously that's an appealing thing aesthetically. But beyond that, green roofs have real potential for reducing the heat within buildings, which then in turn reduces air conditioning demand, which reduces electricity demand, which in turn reduces greenhouse gas emissions. And on it goes. Yes. And on it goes. Very, very good for biodiversity as well. Um, so it tends to attract birds and wildlife. Um, so that's useful uh, turns roof spaces if they're accessible it turns them into usable spaces uh, it tends to have impacts on air pollution as in green roofs reduce air pollution uh, they're also really good for managing excessive rainfall or water events because a, a certain amount of the water gets um, trapped on the roof temporarily rather than directly running off the roof and into yes. the stormwater system so they have some potential around that as well uh, so the green roofs are very very useful um, and can be deployed in many, many jurisdictions, including here. The real question is the types of plants that you put on them. You need to find something that will thrive in the existing climate regime and something that will cope with variability. Um, you know, if you have a lot of drought conditions like we've had here recently, for example, you want something that can withstand that. So um, sedums and things like that uh, are often a little better. Some of the grasses won't last. So you have yeah, to be okay. very careful about that. Um Chicago is another one that's doing really, really well globally. Chicago has been making big efforts to both mitigate its greenhouse gas profile um, and adapt to climate change impacts. And again, something that cities have to bear in mind, uh, and this one is no different, the Gold Coast is no different, is the fact that the climate change impacts that will affect your city may not necessarily be the same as the climate change impacts that will affect another city. Because what they will... In many cases, I mean, if you want to talk about it sort of roughly, climate change impacts will tend to exacerbate existing conditions. So if you've got a place like this where you've got a subtropical climate, you'll tend to get more heat and then more intense rainfall and more intense storms. If you have somewhere like Chicago, which has a more temperate climate, hot summers, cold winters, you'll get colder winters, hotter summers, more or less rain. So you you sort of profile your, your local conditions and then from that you try and respond to the impacts that climate change is going to have specifically for you so when you're adapting it's a very local thing okay and that's um why a lot of cities are are going it alone in a sense is because they're they know that they're at the forefront of climate change impact and response and they know that they need to respond based on their own unique conditions and oftentimes federal governments or national governments whatever the case may be are not necessarily taking the firm steps forwards um, that the cities themselves want, so the cities go ahead. Um, I'll give you an example of that. There's a global initiative called the Compact of Mayors. Um, it sounds designed- like
0: something out of a superhero series. It does, right? It's not that exciting. Unfortunately. <laughs> the Compact of yeah. Mayors only, shall
1: convene. Yeah. Yes. Um, if only it was that exciting, it's not. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it, what it does is it establishes a common platform um, to capture the impact of, of cities' collective actions through standardised measurement uh, of emissions and climate risk and then public reporting on their efforts. So in a sense, what it does is cities hold each other to account.
0: There's a, comp- a healthy competition.
1: Yeah. Mm. So you sign up to it um, and it's a global initiative. There's 447 cities have signed on so far. Are Um, we a
0: signatory? No.
1: No? No. Mayor Tom Tate? Dotted line. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) The the closest signatory to here is actually Byron Shire. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps unsurprisingly. Perhaps unsurprisingly. Sydney signed up, Adelaide and Canberra have signed up, and then a bunch of smaller Shire councils around the country have signed up. Brisbane hasn't signed up, Melbourne. um, I couldn't find them on there. I, I I think they were talking about signing up, but I couldn't see them on the map this morning when I was looking for them.
0: I'd be surprised if they weren't. But ha- however, given recent political movements in and around uh, inner city Melbourne, of course, a fairly strong green presence there, but you'd reckon so. Anyway, You would have thought
1: so. But um, yeah, so what's what's tending to happen in, in initiatives like this is that cities themselves are beginning to respond where there's either a reluctance to respond um, at higher government levels or a failure to respond. And, and the cities themselves know that they're the ones that are going to be liable to deal with this so they're moving ahead and this is a global movement this is transnational this you know transcends national boundaries this is effectively cities operating almost as independent states which of course they're not but in climate change response that's the model that they've taken now this is all mediated through the united nations and un habitat so it's not um I mean, it is an official thing. It's, it's, it's an excellent idea, but it is officially sanctioned at the, at the highest international levels. But in a sense, it's, it's cities going around the chain of command.
0: I've got Dr. Tony Matthews with me. He's an urban planner with the School of Environment at Griffith University. We've been talking about climate change and the city, the interrelationship between the two things. And I've thrown down the challenge to Tony this afternoon to get hypothetical for a moment. We're going to give Tony the mer- meralty briefly
1: appreciate that you're the you're
0: the boss the honorary mayor of the gold coast for the moment you have a a pretty significant budget and i want to know where you would begin what would be let's call it your top five items on your climate change mitigation slash adaptation wish list
1: okay well the best thing that we could do is try and have mitigation and adaptation occurring at the same time. And the principal way to do that is through a citywide urban greening program.
0: Urban greening.
1: An urban greening program. Now, that has multiple benefits. So we're talking about street trees, more street trees, a lot more street trees. We're talking about green roofs on buildings, green walls on buildings, um, sustainable urban drainage systems, that sort of thing. So a a citywide urban greening strategy would be wonderful. Now, there's, there's real benefit in that in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions for some of the reasons that i've already outlined it's also really good for adapting to climate change but beyond that it has massive human health implications we've so spoken a, about this yeah, before we have spoken yeah. about this before so it's a very very positive way to improve human health reduce obesity reduce mortality uh reduce or improve sociability get people out of their houses walking more using parks more it has proven benefits for all of that
0: okay number one greening. The
1: second thing that i would do is i'd um establish uh, a a city-wide renewable energy strategy. I'd put solar panels on all public buildings. I'd start investigating full solar roofs and solar wrapping. I'd incentivize, um, I'd, I'd develop some sort of incentive scheme for residents to do the same thing on their properties. Um, you're going to have issues around storage and grid capacity, but as we're seeing in South Australia right now, but they are being resolved. So that's something that would have to be looked at, but I would immediately follow up on that. Um, I'd Three? Look- Three would be I'd look at better connecting um, surrounding areas to the light rail. That's one of the problems people have with the light rail here is that they can't get to it. It's a bit linear. It's a bit linear. So you've got to have some sort of a mechanism there for doing that, Um, whatever that is, uh, running shuttle buses or whatever. That's another thing that I would do. Um, You could think about, I mean, if you wanted to get more controversial, which I wouldn't necessarily say that you should, but you could think about things like congestion charging. If you come too far in off the emerald one and things like that but i'm not sure that would work here (laughs) uh because of the design of the city so i think maybe i would perhaps leave that um (laughs) continuing the program of coastal protection coastal works and beach nourishment to avoid erosion um landslips uh, severe storm damage things like that that'd be another thing that i'd really double down investment on and i'd look very very seriously at the sea level rise issue not just now but towards end of century and think what do we need to do with some of the buildings that already exist. In
0: terms of the canal system, the estuaries, the inland
1: part of the city that
0: often is overlooked? In... Often
1: overlooked, but um, yeah, because water pushes back, it doesn't just push up, it will, it will push back. But also some of the, the beachfront, beachfront property is going to be quite vulnerable and some of it may be inundated permanently.
0: Thank you for being a temporary mayor this afternoon.
1: I enjoyed it. Tony
0: Matthews, and uh, congratulations again, 20 episodes. Congratulations to all of us, Jason as well,
1: and you. It's wonderful.
0: (laughs) It's a great thing. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Matt.